Last week, so um, thanks for hanging in there for the whole chapter. Uh, it said chapter 11 up there, but it was chapter 12. Um, we try to do something like that every week just so, you know, you guys are paying attention. Um, but, you know, we read, we read the whole thing, um, you know, each week uh, because we think it's important to spend time actually in the Word itself, not even to, to always just be referring to sort of in a general sense what's happening, but to actually take times in the Word. And, and, and a lot of times it's better to just do that right at the outset, to just kind of look at the whole thing together. But, you know, but it can be a lot to take in, right? Um, as Matt said, uh, you know, last week we talked about really Saul who's become king and him finally sort of taking up the mantle of king by leading the people in battle um, against their enemies, the Ammonites, and, uh, and that that's the beginning really of his reign. This week, what we look at here in this chapter where Samuel is talking to the people this is kind of like um, that, that talk that a, that a parent would have with their child when they're about to move out of the house. Uh, you know, they sit down on the bed, you know, like so, you know, you're, uh, you're an adult now, and, uh, and it's time for you to go out on your own, and, and there's a few words of wisdom that I'd like to give you. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it used to be that, like, you know, parents maybe dreaded their kids leaving the house because they'd miss them or something. I don't know. I think nowadays it's like, yeah, please, please, you know, you know, because it happens later and later. But um, just if you've been in that situation, and uh, whether you've been on the giving end of that talk, you've been on the receiving end of that talk, some never got that talk because you don't have that kind of relationship with your parent. But uh, Samuel is getting, getting old. Uh, you know, poor guy, you know, he... Uh, you know, they're really not very, very gentle or kind about him getting old. It's like in every chapter, it's like, you know, and Samuel was old, you know, and it's like, and once again, let's, let's go back to, you know, you're old, you know, and even the people would say to him at times, like, you're old, Samuel, you know, like, I get it, guys, I get it, I'm, I'm getting up there, okay, fine, but he's getting to the point where he's finishing his ministry, they have a king, and as he's uh, beginning to kind of be in these sort of this twilight season of his, of his ministry, of his leadership of the people, he had led them as a prophet, he has, he, or as a priest, he had led them as this priest that God had appointed. He judged them, uh, and that word judge means like to sort of rule over them, to sort of restrain them um, in God's name. And now he's getting older. And so he's basically, what we're seeing here in chapter 12 is very simple. Samuel is gathering the people and he's saying to them, listen, now before I go, I want to talk with you guys about, you know, some things you need to keep in mind moving forward. Uh, now, uh, the purpose of God's people as a people is very simple. The Bible's really clear about it. They are to be um, and, and they're to, to be an example, they're to, they're, to, they're to be a way that the world could see who this God is. They would be a distinct people, and everybody would look at them and would go, wow, okay, their God is different from other gods because they are a people who are different from other people. So if that's the reason they exist, the reason that Israel exists is not just so that they can be happy, it's not just so that they can put, get more people on the planet, it's not just so that they can, uh, uh, you know, battle all the time and win everything, it's so that there would be a sense of this is who God is by looking at them, and, and, and that there would be, they would be different, so the biggest commandment that God gives these people, really, what everything comes out of seems to be one form or another of just, you need to remain distinct, you need to remain the way that I'm telling you to be, because that's how the world's going to know who I am. They're going to look at you, and they're going to see me. They're going to look at you, and you're going to point them to me. Okay, that's the point of being an Israelite, being one of these people. 
So if he's having this talk with them saying, here's how you're to proceed once I'm gone or, 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 or long into the future even as I'm still here for a little bit. He, he's saying to them, here's how you are to proceed, keeping in mind that your job is to be a people who point other people to God. Then the question is, what does that look like? What Samuel is giving the people here is essentially a long-term plan. He's saying, okay, let's talk about how, you know, over the long haul, you guys should be doing things. Okay, you got your king now. Let's talk about what life is going to look like for you guys moving forward. I don't know if you ever sat down and made long-term plans. It's not always the funnest thing to do. Some people cannot make it to tomorrow without having some kind of a very long-term plan. That long-term plan is the only way that you feel like you know, feel good at all about what's happening tomorrow or the next day. Others, the last thing that you would ever want to do is sit down and think long-term. But what Samuel's doing for the people here is he is laying out for them, this is how you need to go about living each day, day in and day out, as one of God's people. It applies to us so well. And we see it as we get all the way through this chapter, kind of closer to the end, because he spends a long time building his case, and we're going to see why. But what he says to them here is, this is the plan for how you guys are to proceed. This is how an Israelite lives out their life. This is how you as a people should be. And it is exactly the same for us, we come to see in what he points out to them. He lays out the steps for them. These steps are the ones you need to take day in and day out so that you can stay on track with God, so that you can be headed in the right direction, so that you do not anger God or receive his wrath. The, the first one he says here in verses 16 through 17, he, um, he's, he's spent a long time basically trying to prove his credibility, say, okay, come on, like, have I not shown you guys through what I've done that you can trust me? They're like, yeah, okay, now time for you to listen to what I have to say. And then he tells them all this stuff about kind of, it seems like he's telling them how bad they are. And then he says this, he says, I will call upon the Lord, in verse 16, that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So he has spent all up until verse 16 just basically showing them, reminding them about him, basically saying, first of all, here's, can we agree you guys can trust me? Can, you, can we agree I'm not in this for myself? Can we agree I haven't asked you for anything unreasonable? Can we agree that I haven't done anything to disqualify me from speaking to you right now about what God wants? Like, yeah, okay, we agree. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and then he goes through and he, and he explains to them all these things about how faithful God has been to them. And he, and he says this to the people, now that he has their attention. He says, you have been so bad. That's basically the first thing he says to them. He says, today is the day of wheat and harvest, and I'm going to do something. And in doing this, in sending you rain, it's not like... God's going to send you rain to show you how awesome you are. God's going to send you rain to just remind you of how great you're doing and how great things are going. He says, God's going to send you rain, and what it means is you have done evil. You, your wickedness has been great because you've asked for a king. 
Not a good place to start. But it's where it always seems to start in this long-term plan. Because this plan about how you are to live each day moving forward ultimately is rooted in this thing that we call repentance. This act that we call repentance. In order to be a Christian who lives out their life in a way that is on track with God, what that track is going to be defined by or is going to be filled with is regular acts of repentance. It's going to start there. And it's no different for his people here. And so Samuel's gathering their attention, pulling them aside, showing them a miracle of God, in fact, and then saying to the people, your wickedness is great, and we need to start there. So he does that. He sends them rain, this miraculous thing, just to show them that God is real, that God is blessing what it is that he's saying. Why would he do that? Because some would say that it's not something that we want to hear. Some would say that we don't enjoy hearing about how great our wickedness is. Some would say that we don't like the idea of repentance, which ultimately seems to begin with saying that you're wrong or that you were wrong. That's crazy though, right? Because most of us here, we probably love it, we probably enjoy it, and we're probably very quick to acknowledge when there's something that we've done wrong, even if no one else has pointed it out to us. Even if our life seems to be going pretty well, but we become aware of something that we know is not right. No, the truth of repentance is, it is no fun. The first step in this 50-year plan is very simple, this long-term plan. Have the courage to repent. And we say have the courage because repentance takes courage. Jesus talks about this in Matthew. Well, we see it in his ministry. Early in his ministry, we read, And getting into a boat in Matthew chapter 9, He crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Could you imagine being the paralytic in this scenario? Could you imagine Jesus coming up? And let's say that you even had any idea of what Jesus was capable of, and you've been paralyzed, and uh, you've been waiting your whole life for this to change in some way. Um, And uh, this guy comes up who can do something, and he uses all of his powers to say, your sins are forgiven, right? What? What? Because a person who has lived with a disability, a person who, like this person, is paralyzed, what would be the thing that they would want the most in the world? It would be to be healed, 
to be physically made new, to be restored. If you are a person who is disabled physically, you know this feeling, this, this need that you've had to even come to terms with and accept maybe the disability, knowing I can't keep thinking or fixating on or focusing on the possibility of getting better and never getting past this thing. I have to come to terms with this thing. But what this encounter with Jesus does is it makes us ask a question. And it's one of those questions that, man, what would our answer be? And the question is this. Well, if you had the choice and Jesus was there and you're a person who's paralyzed, who's, who's a person who's been disabled, a person whose entire life has been probably, um, probably overtaken by this disability that you have, that if Jesus was standing before you and you had a choice between your sins being forgiven or your body being healed, which of those two things would you choose? Which of those two things would be more important to you? How many of us could honestly say that if given the opportunity to be physically whole or spiritually whole, that we would take the spiritual one? You see, when we talk about repentance, we're talking about something that is more important than even our physical body and our physical health. Because we know, uh, if you understand the Bible at all, that the effects of sin are wide-reaching, far-reaching, devastating, and ultimately lead to death all the time. And so what Jesus tells us and God tells us is that the the destruction that can come from sin is way worse than the kind of of destruction and suffering that can come from physical issues and problems that we deal with. But we don't live in that place, usually. We live in a physical place, and we want things to physically be good. When we talk about the need for repentance, uh, the Bible tells us that the reason that we start there in this plan to stay on track with God, if you will, is because of how absolutely deadly, dangerous, destructive sin is in our lives. It is so destructive in our lives that it would be better to be forgiven of our sin, to be healed of our sin, and to repent of it and to move in the other direction from it than it would be to be healed from the things that are physically either killing us or disabling us. I mean, you, you would have to really believe that sin is a big deal, right? To choose spiritual healing over physical healing. How many of us could honestly say that that's the choice that we would make? But the Bible is clear that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is that you would stray from God. Not that you would physically be disabled or sick or experience death. And when I say, you know, turn away from God, I'm not talking about people like like losing their faith because they've sinned, you know, and, and that if you don't keep track of that perfectly, then you won't be a Christian anymore. I'm saying that for sin to enter into our lives... And for us to go sort of where that will lead us, that the destruction that comes from that, we know that it is so bad 
that it would be better to be spiritually whole than to be physically whole. Now, that's easy for me to say as a person who is relatively physically whole. For those I've talked with who have experienced disability, who are living with suffering and with pain and even with a a grim diagnosis ahead of them, that's a much harder thing, obviously, to say. You see, sin, the Bible tells us that our hearts are kind of, that our hearts have been corrupted by sin and that because of that, we have this propensity towards it as long as we are living in the flesh. As long as we're living in these fleshly bodies, that we will have this tendency within us. It doesn't just go away. We don't get to wake up one day and be on autopilot and everything's fine now because we've arrived at a certain point. And so, uh, so what that means is that if we're not constantly experiencing this humble repentance, then chances are we're already off track. We just don't have the humility to see it. Our, 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 our bodies have been corrupted by sin, and because of that, we're kind of like a car that has been out of alignment, that, that hit a really bad pothole or something, and now it doesn't drive quite straight. And you know that car's out of alignment because if you take your hands off the wheel, if you stop keeping it going straight consciously, then it will veer off of the track, the course that it's supposed to be on. That that is going to happen every time. It's going to veer off. It's going to veer off. And as much as we would like to believe that maybe there was a time in my life when things were out of alignment, but now they're not. Now I'm okay. Now I'm going to be okay. In fact, I'm so okay that other people should be like me. That's how okay I am. That the Bible tells us, no, that as long as you're living in this body, that the car's out of alignment, and it's going to drift, which is why the the Bible tells us to do things like to fix our gaze on on Christ, to, to see him as this sort of point on the horizon that we can aim at and say, I want to keep heading towards him. As much as we would like to believe that that's not true of us, as long as we're living in the flesh, even if you're a Christian, you're still going to have that car that's out of alignment. And what it's going to do is pull you one way or the other. And because of that, we constantly have to revisit this thing called repentance. The Israelites were prone to wander. We think pretty highly of ourselves usually. And so because of that, we have a hard time believing this. Maybe there's a season in our life. Maybe there's a point when things were bad, but now they're not quite so bad. Maybe we were in difficult circumstances or just a time when we uh, had people pointing out to us quite a bit, like, boy, you're a mess. At that time, maybe that was easy to see, that I'm prone to wander, that I'm prone to drift. But what Samuel is saying to the Israelites moving forward is he's saying, um, you guys need to continue doing this. He isn't just saying, uh, you guys blew it, but he's walking them through, we'll see, this process of again and again acknowledging the fact that they're going to have these tendencies in their life that they need to be aware of. And so we use language like, I struggle with, you know, dot, dot, dot. I'm prone to dot, 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 you know. I've already made up my mind about dot, dot, dot. I just can't trust this thing. I just can't believe that thing. And if you're someone um, who is, well, the, the fact is, it is those who are the most confident that they don't need repentance. 
These are the ones that Jesus has the biggest fights with, right? That's when it gets really nuts, is when Jesus is encountering a person who's like, oh, no, no, no. Believe me, I get sin and how it works. I dealt with that, and I'm good now. These people are prone to tell other people to be like them because they're good now. They're prone to point people towards them instead of towards Jesus or towards God himself. And the Israelites were not being told, here's what you guys need to do, is you guys need to get to a point where you're perfect and then everyone needs to be just like you. In fact, no, he's saying you guys are going to need to keep doing this again and again. We would love to believe that the Christian life is kind of like like an awards ceremony where like every year you get to get up and we get to acknowledge the new heights that you've reached in your amazingness, right? Like this year, uh, you get the, uh, the, the gracious award, the patience award, uh, because you became a more patient person this year. And because of that, uh, you are now better, objectively speaking. And you also probably need God's help a little bit less, which is good too, right? That's like the, that's like the reward money is you don't have to depend on God quite so much. And as much as we would love to believe that the Christian life is like an award ceremony, that that's what it's supposed to kind of be like year after year as we get better and better and better as people, if you want to characterize the Christian life as anything, it is a lot more like going uh, to an AA meeting where you have a room full of people saying, this is my name and I'm an alcoholic. And as people say in AA, the person who's been sober the longest that day is the person who woke up earliest that day. Because you take it a day at a time knowing that they say, I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over sin. The Bible tells us that. I'm powerless over this thing. And because of that, rather than seeing the Christian life as, I hope that 20 years down the road, I'm going to be this amazing version of myself. That it is a lot more biblical to see the Christian life as 20 years from now, I'm going to be hopefully have the humility to say, God, I've blown it here, and I need you in my life. That's a, that's a scary thought for us because we're all about upward mobility. We're all about getting better. We're, we're willing to do the hard work and invest if we think that we are going to get better by the end of it. And that is not to say that we don't believe that sanctification uh, exists, which says that we can become more holy, that we can become more like Christ because we believe that fundamentally. But what sanctification looks like is the gradual giving over of your heart more and more and more to God himself. But that means giving over more and more of your heart to God and himself. To seeing these things in you that maybe you didn't see before and going, man, I see that now. God has brought that to my eyes now. I'm aware of it now. And I have to repent. I think about this when I think about uh, my, my own children. I think about who I want them to grow up to be. I think about what I would be proud of my children growing up to be. And it is so easy as a parent to think, I want my children to grow up to be these people that everyone else looks at and says, you're a great person. Look at at how you act. Look at how you live. Look at how much you know, how impressive you are. That would be so great. How often are we finding ourselves thinking, what I want to see my own children be is people of humility who years and years and years down the road, rather than are so great and amazing in this outward sense that we want to celebrate and lift up, and and instead are simply humble enough to say, I'm wrong. 
Do we honestly believe that what our world needs right now is people who are better versions of this? Or do we believe that what our world needs right now is people who are more humble and willing to admit when we're wrong? The tone of Samuel's interaction with these people is you guys have got to not be afraid to see when you've blown it. And that's a hard thing to do, which is why we say it takes courage. Repentance is one of the hardest things that there is to do. It is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the weak of stomach. Repentance takes courage. Especially when we see something in ourselves and realize that in order to acknowledge that thing, to be honest about that thing, it's not going to make us look better to everybody else. It's going to make us look worse. In that way, there are times when to experience wholeness spiritually, we will feel as though we are choosing to experience pain, disability, physically. But it's so important that Samuel's telling the people, you guys have to be able to do this. So he says to them in the beginning, I'm going to bring this rain, and when this rain comes, you're going to know that God is here with us and that what I'm saying matters, and I need you guys to understand something. I'm not standing up here patting all of you on the back saying, you guys have done a phenomenal job. He's saying, just because the Ammonites are defeated, just because you got your king, just because everything turned out the right way, according to you in your mind maybe, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're doing great right now. You guys have blown it, he's saying to them, and you have to see that in yourselves. And they seem to. So he then goes on. He says, we read this in verse 20, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your hearts. So the first thing that he says to them is, you guys, he, just, he has to acknowledge. You have to acknowledge and own that you guys blew it which takes courage. The second thing is he says, you need to serve the Lord with all your heart. He's pointing them in the direction immediately for where they go, because this isn't just about getting over the bad stuff that we do or trying to become better versions of ourselves. This is about giving a heart back to God that was his and hasn't been. My heart belongs to God and nothing else. And so when I see myself in a place where there's sin in my life, what that says to me is it says my heart here in this area does not seem to belong to God. And so what Samuel says to the people is he says, serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside from following him. So what he's saying is, I mean, the the language here is very clear. It's a person walking in a straight line. And this person walking in the straight line is going to be tempted to get distracted, to go off course, and staying on course is, getting back in line is, giving your heart back to God. Now, those who are not touchy-feely, emotional, internal people, don't, we don't really like this very much because this is all too, uh, you know? 
I get my heart to God and my heart on things. Listen, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about my heart, you know, other than like what I should be eating and exercising. Uh, how big of a deal is it really? One of the biggest mistakes that a person can make is to believe that being a Christian, that following God is all about our behavior and our actions, that we can just kind of like work our way out of the mess that we're in. You see plenty of that in the Bible. It doesn't go very well for people. There's always going to be a point of acknowledging, man, my heart has got to be given back over to God. This is internal work. And many of us are uncomfortable with that internal work. There are some who are endlessly introspective and, uh, and, and sometimes it's so easy to look inward and always be thinking about yourself and your feelings in your heart that like, you're constantly living in this world. Most people are not very self-reflective. What does this look like to turn your heart to God? I mean, honestly, it means talking to Him. It means actually worshiping Him. It means actually, literally going to His Word. Saying, well, I can't turn my heart back to God if I'm not with Him. If I'm not hearing from him and talking to him and listening to him and praising him. That's why the Christian life is built around doing these things. Not because we earn some status by doing them. It's because these things are the way that we have a heart that is after God. And so he says, you're going to see where you're wrong and you're going to, Aim your heart back to God before you do anything else, before you say, oh, here's how I'm going to fix all the problems. Here's how I'm going to do all the things better. Here's how I'm going to be a better version of myself. I'm not going to step in that hole again. I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to make this mistake again. I'm not going to do that with those relationships anymore. Because before you get to any of that stuff, remember this. Serve the Lord with all your hearts. That is where it begins. Guilt leads to repentance but guilt will not lead us back to life itself. Guilt will get you part of the way, feeling guilty, feeling convicted, feeling bad, but guilt isn't going to get you to being spiritually whole. God is the only one that will get you there. I mean, how many of us, how many have gotten halfway there, right? You don't need anybody. My experience is that we, we, there are a lot we, we all feel guilty a lot. You know, we, we, we feel a lot of guilt. We, we, there's a reason why people are spending so much money, so much of the time in counseling because of the guilt and the stuff that people feel and are dealing with. How often do we get the other half of the way where we say like, oh wait, there's something else beyond just the guilt that is giving my heart to God. Without this, it is just self-improvement, without saying it's about looking to God himself. And Samuel's saying to the people here, he's saying, you guys have got to keep your hearts focused on the Lord. You have got to keep giving your hearts back over to the Lord. And this is going to be a regular thing. He goes on and he talks about, well, so what he's saying to them is don't, start, don't stop giving your heart to God. You're, this is going to be a process that, that is happening again and again. You're going to find yourself, again, out of alignment. 
And what it means to go back into alignment is not just to act better, to do better things, to fix the problems. Now, the people around us who maybe even help us see that these things are in our lives, they're probably going to do a pretty good job of telling us, oh, here's how you can act better, and here's how you can do things that are better, and that's how you can fix that problem, because that's usually all we care about is all the stuff that will make it better. But it's deeper than that. It is giving your heart back to God. He goes on and he says then, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. I don't know if you get the sense here, but he seems to think that these things are pretty empty. Do not turn aside after empty things. As you're standing, as you're walking on this path, and you're trying to head in this straight direction, there's going to be a temptation for you, and that temptation is going to be to turn aside, to get off track, and what will cause you to want to turn aside? Empty things. That's weird. Why would I want to turn aside for empty things? Things that cannot profit or deliver for, once again, they're empty. We read about in in Deuteronomy, We read, take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside, it's the same word here, you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. You see, the problem that we have is a pretty simple one. As we're walking along on this path in life, the things that will cause us us to turn aside are the idols and all of the things in life that seem to promise but do not deliver. If my heart belongs to God, then I'm going to get distracted by other things that say, hey, I'm better. Hey, this is better. I will deliver more than God will. I will satisfy more than God will. I am more trustworthy than God is. With me, you can be more in control than God than with God, because God does not let you be in control, and you know you don't like that, but with me, you can be. These are all the things that we have popping up, and what do those things do? They distract us. They're these things, that the noise that comes up, and he's saying, don't turn aside. Don't, don't get off the path because of those things. Ignore the distraction of these empty things, because that is what they are, and that distraction and that noise will always be around you while you're living in the flesh. And he is so clear, Samuel is, that these things are, are they full things? No, they're not full. They're empty things. They promise and they don't deliver. There's a reason why he is, uh, so the first, so Samuel, after establishing his own credibility with the people, goes to great lengths here, as Matt just read, to remind them of how much when following, how much following God is not emptiness, And then reminding them again and again how these other people have these other gods and they serve them and they're literally just statues of things. They don't deliver. It is all about promises and hopes and things that will not come to pass. And and he says, like he does this random miracle of rain coming down on this harvest day, but literally what he's saying here is he's simply saying, okay, I'm going to show you guys that God is real. And here's how you'll know he's real. Because I'm going to tell you something's going to happen that's miraculous and it's going to happen. That's called a sign. Jesus did them all the time. And the thing about following all the other gods at the time was you had no idea what they were going to do. 
because they weren't real. You had no idea how they were going to respond to your sacrifice or your tribute or whatever you did because they weren't up there listening or pay, taking these things in and actually these things weren't really doing anything at all. The, the people in ancient times lived with a constant fear of the unpredictability of life around them and the way that they tried to control this was by making up a bunch of gods and then saying if we do these things then somehow we'll be in control. But you invest in these things and give yourself to these things and they would find out every culture would find out again and again and again this is empty and Samuel very very easily says I will show you that God is in fact real that he is does in fact hear you and he is paying attention and and then the rain comes and they see that and what that is meant to show them is this is that this is not empty you don't have, to, you don't have to, to wonder if all the stuff that you're doing, if this God that you're, that you're talking to, that you're repenting to, you don't have to wonder and be afraid all the time, like, will this result in anything? Is any of this real? Samuel's going to incredibly great lengths just to remind the people, to remind them of how God, he walks them through. And then God did this, remember? And then God did this, remember? And then God did this, remember? And that is what we are to do. When these distractions come up, when these things come up, we are to remind ourselves and remind each other. Like, no, no, no. God delivers, not that thing. You guys know this. We all know this. We don't need to hear a lot about this. We don't need to spend even a lot of time talking about this because we know that the things that we turn to ultimately are empty. And Samuel really sees that. And he says, but don't let these things distract you because it will take you away from this place where your heart can be for God. He is very clearly saying to the people, I know with certainty that in the end, you will find yourself unsatisfied with these things. We all know what it is to watch a friend, to watch a loved one, like, go down the path of something that is empty and destructive, knowing full well this is leading to emptiness for them. It's harder to see it in ourselves. I'm a person who gets very easily distracted. I get very easily distracted by things. I have my whole life. And my life is a constant battle of not allowing myself to get distracted by things. I'm not a sedentary person. I'm not like... What am I going to do today? I'm what 50 things out of the 3,000 things that have just popped in my head am I going to do today? And there, there are so many sort of distractions that I'm constantly filtering through them and saying like what here is emptiness and what isn't? And will this take me away from God? And if you try to do this a lot, this process of repenting, giving your heart back to God, acknowledging that these things are empty, and try not to get distracted, trying to be real good about it, you're naturally going to get to a point where you're overwhelmed by it. You feel beat down by it. You feel like, yeah, guess what? There's no way that I can do this. I can't just, I can't do this again and again and again. And you start to wonder if God's ever really going to be there for you. You start to wonder if you're really the kind of person who can even, even be someone who follows after God. And this is where Samuel comes in and he says this to them. For the Lord will not forsake his people. 
for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He says, how do you know this isn't going to result to emptiness? Because God isn't going to forsake you. God isn't going to give up on you. And why isn't he going to forsake you? Is it because he knows that in the end you're going to prove that you really can do it? No. He's not going to forsake you because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It is for his great name's sake. So God is, Samuel's reminding the people, he's saying, listen, uh, as you live this way, day after day, year after year, generation after generation, know that no matter what it feels like, that God is not going to forsake you. Because he is a great God, and he does not forsake his children. I was talking with someone this week who we were literally just talking about life. We were talking about life, and as we were talking about it, we basically find ourselves talking about this entire thing from the first step all the way down. As we talk about the struggles and about the temptation, we talk about the, the, the need to be able to just seek after God again, and then we get to the point where it's like, yeah, I know, but I'm beat down by this, and it's hard to do this day after day. It's, I'm weary, I'm, I'm broken down, I'm worn out. Do I want to keep trying to stay on this straight path that seems so exhausting to try to stay on? His reminder is God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. And that's something that we need to know, that we need to hear. He then also says this about himself. He says, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So Samuel's saying to them as encouragement, knowing this is hard, he's saying, God is going to be there for you. And he's saying, I'm going to be here for you because for me as your priest, I would be sinning against God by not praying for you, hoping for you, rooting for you. He's basically saying, I'm in your corner. Now, why does he have to say this? Because I don't know if you can tell, but there's kind of a love-hate relationship with uh, prophets and priests and leaders in the Bible, you know? I mean, I don't know if you get the sense that they might not like Samuel all that much all the time. They might not like the things that these guys tell them. That, that he has to almost remind them, you know, I am, I want good things for you. I care about you. I'm praying for you, and I'm going to instruct you in the right way. I, I think that it's, uh, it's probably pretty likely that the Israelites felt a lot like people feel in church today, which is, why is this guy always trying to make me feel so guilty? Why are they always picking on everything that I'm doing, right? Why is it, why is it like that? That, that these people, God's people, Samuel gathers them together and maybe they think it's going to be a celebration and he ends up saying, you guys are a mess. Like, yeah, okay. I mean, do people associate religion with guilt? Yes. Do they associate church with guilt? Yes. Do they associate the idea of ministers with guilt? Yes. 
And so Samuel is telling them, I actually care about you guys, and I'm praying for you. And I'm I'm not perfect. I'm not going to perfectly care about you and perfectly love you. But I've got more motivation than just my love for you guys. For me to, to be doing what I'm doing and to not is sinning against God myself. So I will be there in your corner. You know, I, I, I know so many pastors who have such deep love for the people of, of the flock, people of the church, people in their congregations, and, and struggle to actually like tell people, you know, to, 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 to point out for people the sin that they see, to, to say the hard things that we read about in God's word that we're supposed to say and remind one another of. To want not just love, but to want holiness, to want righteousness, to want sanctification for the people. Uh, a pastor named Richard Baxter that I, I read from a lot, he wrote in 1656, to his fellow pastors as he was instructing them. He said, if you be their best friends, help them against their worst enemies. This is how Samuel sees what's going on in front of him. He says, I love these people, the people of God, but that means I hate their enemies. And their enemies are not out there. The enemies that we struggle with more than anything are in here. It is, it is the very things that our heart, our fallen heart, do to us. And so if, it's, if it seems like I'm against you sometimes, doesn't mean I'm against you. It means I love you, church, and it means, it means that we, your pastors, your leaders, your shepherds, we love you, but we hate your enemies, which is, which is the, the very distractions the emptiness, the things that so easily take us off the path that we know that God desires for us to be on. Say, I'm in your corner. When I think about somebody being in someone's corner, I don't know a lot about sports, but I'm pretty sure that this is a boxing thing. Matt, is that true? He does, he's like, I don't care. I'm not, he wasn't listening. It is, Okay. You can buy this shirt. It's, uh, it's Mickey, Mick from uh, Rocky, and uh, it's a picture of him. And he's saying, you're a bum, because that's what he says to Rocky. He says, you're a bum, Rock, right? What a great coach, right? But this is essentially what a coach is, really, fundamentally. It is somebody who says, I care about you, maybe I don't know I care about you, but I believe in you or I believe in your potential and yet I'm here to tell you you're a bum right now. Yikes. I'm not saying you're all bums or anything like that, okay? That's, that's what Mick says. That's, that's the way he does it and that's fine. That works for him. It seemed to work for Rock too. But, but this is... Samuel, with his people, he's, he's saying, like, I'm in your corner. I'm the one that you're going to go to when the bell rings, and I'm going to be there for you, and I'm going to be psyching you up, and I'm going to be coaching you, and I'm going to be getting you through this. But the way that I'm going to do that is that there are times that I'm going to be um, encouraging, and, and it's going to feel good, and there are times that I'm going to be encouraging, but it's going to be like you're a bum is how it's going to feel. 
And this is what Samuel does for God's people. And he does it because he loves them. He does it because he cares about them. And he's giving them this encouragement right now, saying to them, listen, you're on this path. You're walking. And if, we're gonna, if, you're gonna, if you want to know how to do this for the long haul, it's simple. Rather than seeing yourselves as uh, people who get better and better every day, see yourselves as people who continue to be humble as long as you're living in the flesh, and that that humility that doesn't go away, even though for, for so many of us, right, is this not the, the course of life to the longer that we live, to let the humility slip away, to, to, well, not necessarily let it slip away, not to have less humility, but to feel less of a need to acknowledge things. And so he's simple with the people. He says, he says you need to realize and you need to be able to have the courage to say, I've blown it. I've been distracted. I'm off track. My heart is not for God. And then the first thing that you do is you say, my heart goes back to God. And then you remember as you're following after God that these empty things around you, these distractions around you, that they don't deliver on what they promise. And that if we can encourage each other with wisdom, it can be wisdom of things like that. And he then encourages them by saying, no matter how weary you get or how hard it gets to remember this and to live in this, just know that, just know that God will not forsake you. That if you feel beat down and you feel like you, you are not good enough, that he is not going to actually really be there for you in the end, he says, God will not forsake you and it doesn't have to do with how good you are. It has to do with how good he is. And he says, and I'm going to be here for you out of love. And it's not going to feel good all the time. But I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to be praying for you. Because I want you to be on that right path. I want that more than anything for you. This is a season right now that is unprecedented. I mean, this, this time that we find ourselves in, when we have basically had to stop doing for almost a year everything it feels like in life, and now as we're coming back, coming back into community together, coming back to church, going back to work, going back into restaurants, going back to school, as we're coming back to all these things, we still kind of have the ability to ask the question like, but do I need to come back? And there are some who are physically back, and yet... Uh, physically isn't just all that it takes. We have to be able to say that if I'm here in the community of God, it is because God intends to use this place to help me in this way, in this journey that I'm on. And that for those who, like, can't come back, you can't come back, but you can still be a part of it here. And then there are those who are going to struggle, and it is going to be hard, and they're going to be like, you know what? Not being around the people of God, not, not, not being confronted with God's word all the time, it's actually kind of easy. It's actually a little bit nice at times. And what we need to hear is the importance of what it is 
to not just do this, walk in the line on our own. Samuel's saying to the people, do this with me. Let me guide you and lead you in doing this and walking on this straight path towards God. The Christian life is not an award ceremony. It is an AA meeting. The Christian life is daily being able to say in humility, I need God. It's not that God needs me. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, if you're somebody who has been around this, has been near this, has heard this, has kind of agreed with the ideas, knows all the information even, but has never actually taken the step, first, the very hard step that takes courage of saying with humility, the problem is not out there. The enemies are not out there. The things God wants me to focus on are not out there. God wants me to look here first and with humility say, God, I need you. Now is the time to do that. Let's pray. Father, I am... I pray for those who are here this morning who are so self-confident and so assured that a sign of maturity is not having to repent, is not needing to have the humility, Lord. The people that we choose to look up to are most of the time not people who are known for their humility, not people who are broken, not people who are trusting in you, but instead are people who are great examples of of self-reliance and of self-improvement and of upward mobility, Lord. Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and those who followed him wholeheartedly, God. Father, if there's anyone here today who has never made the decision to follow you, who has never made the the choice to simply say, I trust you, I repent of my sin, and I will turn to you to find life. I will not find it anywhere else, God. I know that there are those either watching or who are here in person who have experienced or are in the midst right now of experiencing the emptiness that everything but you could bring, Lord. Some are so far off that path, so filled with and experiencing so many different things, and yet those things are empty. They they are filled with promises that do not deliver. Father, I pray that for those who are feeling that now, who are in that place now, Lord, they would be able to just pray this simple prayer. God, I know that I am off track. I know that the problem isn't out there, but it is a problem that exists in my heart. And God, I need you. Father, I repent. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I have sinned. And rather than looking anywhere else right now, I'm simply looking inward at myself and asking you to forgive me, God. 
God, I trust that you can forgive me and that you will forgive me and that you will not forsake me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And Father, I commit to from this day forward seeking you, giving my heart to you, believing in you, and not other things that don't deliver, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.